If you have read enough books or watched enough movies, you would know of a thing called a turning point. In fact, in the story, there could be many turning points that move the story forward, taking the protagonist towards the finale and resolution. A popular example of this is in The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. In the middle of the film, a group of people are deciding what to do with the One Ring, and as everyone is bickering over what to do, the protagonist Frodo declares that he will destroy the ring. This is a deciding turning point in the film because it pushes us forward to a resolution, albeit two and a half movies later. And this is where we find ourselves in Mark, with Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. This is where we discover the end goal, with everything slowing down as we get to the finale. It is in this passage that not only is Jesus' identity and mission identified, but also our identity and mission as his followers. Our eyes are opened a little more to the gospel and the faith we must have in Jesus. Our first point uh, today is, do we see? Um, And starting in verse 22, we see that Jesus' healing of the blind man at Bethsaida is not altogether normal of Jesus' healings. It starts off relatively normal with the friends of the blind man bringing him to Jesus to be healed. The friends show their faith in Jesus by bringing the blind man and pleading to Jesus. And then Jesus leads the man away from the village to heal him and spits in his eyes. Now, if I was the blind man, I would not have wanted spit to be the means of which I can see. But nevertheless, Jesus does it. And then he asks if he can see anything. The answer may surprise us because the man can only partially see. Now, it appears Jesus' miracle is not as absolute as we might want it to be. Now, the blind man, he sees people's sticks, which resemble trees. And so Jesus again places his hands on the man's eyes, and in verse 25, his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. We may be asking now, why did Jesus do it twice, and what is the purpose of the story? The story of the blind man at Bethsaida is a story of Jesus working miracle, and it also works as a parable. You see, Jesus heals the blind man, heals the man twice, because it shows that the, that the disciples didn't fully understand who Jesus was. Now, however, in the following verses, we see them gain the understanding of who Jesus truly is. Our second point uh, for today is, who do you say Jesus is? Now, the question of who Jesus is still is and always will be an important question. So the distinction in the questions Jesus asks is important. On one hand, in verse 27, Jesus asks the disciples who the people say that Jesus is. These are the people who see Jesus' miracles and hear his teaching. They are everyday people. They aren't, aren't his disciples. 
You know, but their, their knowledge of Jesus is narrow and only partial in their view of who he is. Uh, I've only been married since uh, January, but during that short time, my wife has learnt some odd things about me. One of those things is how I eat. You see, she has discovered that I am methodical with how I eat. You know, I start with my vegetables and end with my meat. In my mind, I start with something I don't like, the vegetables, and end with something I do. Now, to Claire, that is something that she has noticed more and more. You might not have known this thing about me because you don't know me like Claire knows me and you know, only know a part of me, while my wife, she knows more. We see this in the popular answers that are given, as we also see them in our context. People only know a form of Jesus, and their view of who he is is very narrow. Whether he be a great moral teacher, or conjecture that he maybe he wasn't someone who existed. People have their own understanding of who Jesus is. So some of the answers the disciples give, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, some prophet. Although different, all three of these suggestions are surrounded with a coming Messiah, but not the Messiah. And these suggestions are reminiscent of the blind man who can kind of see, but everything is blurry. Now we've seen in the past chapters that Jesus has shown himself to be a healer and a teacher. You know, people have taken that, and so they can see that Jesus is someone special, that God's redemptive plans will include him. But they only partly see who he is. In our culture, people also see Jesus in a special way, but not that he is the Messiah. They are like the people who offer suggestion, but never truly grasp who he, who he is. You know, we as Christians should carefully consider how we share about who Jesus is. So Jesus asks his disciples who they think he is. And in verse 29, Peter pipes up and says that Jesus is the Messiah. And that is the key turning point, that Jesus is the Messiah. And, and Peter's right, he's, he's got it. Jesus is the Messiah. But what does Peter mean by that? And it seems there may be something lost in translation. If we look further down, we see that Peter and Jesus have a different idea of who the Messiah truly is. Now, in the latter half of verse 32, after Jesus has explained what being the Messiah truly means, Peter rebukes Jesus. Peter tells that Jesus is wrong about who the Messiah is. It appears I have two very different ideas of what being the Messiah means. When I was in Niger, I tried learning the local language Hausa, and there is a big emphasis on try, but try I did. You know, my Hausa teacher would try to teach me the language, but as he was trying to teach me the language using English, things would get lost in translation. One word would mean another, and sometimes I would go out into the world speaking something I didn't truly understand. I would get confused faces and puzzled looks as I tried to speak Hausa. You know, in this I sympathise with Peter, because he also was speaking something he didn't truly understand. You see, Peter's idea of the Messiah is tied up with a king who will take the throne of Israel and liberate them. 
This king will usher in God's reign forever and ever. And this sounds great and is also partly true as we will see. But it is also off the mark. Sometimes in our understanding and ability to convey Jesus, we get it wrong. We might have the right intentions, but sometimes we put our own image of who Jesus is in place of who he really is. You know, like Peter, we set our thoughts on the things of man and not of God. It is like we can see Jesus and he, he isn't blurry. But we have these glasses on that view him in the way we want. They change and distort Jesus into who we want him to be. It's a real danger with only one real fix. Must look at how Jesus saw himself. The next point is, who does Jesus say he is? Let's read the text in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. In this, Jesus teaches that to be the Messiah is to suffer and rise again. You see, we cannot divide Jesus from his humiliating death in which he died for our sin, becoming the perfect sacrifice, giving us grace to become God's children, to his resurrection in which he will return to judge. Jesus is saying that he had to die and he had to rise again. Secondly, we cannot separate from the fact that Jesus sees himself as fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Jesus identifies himself with the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, which says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. No, the Son of Man came before God's glory and could stand before him. And Jesus' identification with this Son of Man points to God's kingdom and reign. And Jesus is the Son of Man who will have dominion forever and ever. However, he follows up the glorious image of a ruler and identifies him with someone who is rejected by his own countrymen and the religious leaders and is killed. Jesus is fulfilling not just the idea that he is the Son of Man, but also the suffering servant in Isaiah. In chapter 53 of Isaiah, we learn that this servant will die for our transgressions and sins. Now Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah and the son of man foretold in Daniel. That This is the real Messiah. On one hand, he will suffer all things. And then on the other hand, he will reign over all things. And only he could do that. So being slightly introspective, we need to ask if we view Jesus as he viewed himself, as king and means by which we have salvation. 
You see, we need to not separate Jesus' mission from his death, in which he died so we might be saved, and that he rose to return to God, be in his presence as a glorified Son of Man, in which he will return. We need to view Jesus for who he is. Our last point for today is, who am I? Now that we've heard of the reality of what Jesus must do, Jesus tells us in verses 34 to chapter 9 verse 1, who we are and what we must do. Now a commentator on Mark, Lamar Williamson, writes about this passage saying, By leading to a clear understanding of the correct answer to the question, Who is Jesus? This text points to a clear understanding of the question, Who am I? I am a disciple. Uh, This is a really challenging part of the text. Because it doesn't say, If you would come after me, come to church every Sunday, read your Bible every day, or do nice things, then you will be my followers. Jesus is very clear in verse 34 that one should deny himself and take up his cross and follow him. Now we might be asking, what does Jesus mean by denying himself or oneself? By denying oneself, Jesus is not meaning that we deny a part of oneself or give up something that is important, but that we deny self as being central to our lives. Likewise, Jesus does not say that we should make ourselves less than others in hopes of denying oneself. Jesus means that we should put his mission, plans and teaching ahead of ours. Then in Jesus' death and how he lived his life, we should also follow him in how we live our lives. Already that is a more difficult thing to do than anything I have mentioned about denying a part of oneself or giving up something that is important. Because what Jesus is wanting is a change in our life that doesn't make us the head of ourselves. Instead, it makes Jesus central in our lives. Now, the next thing Jesus says is that we should take up our cross. Now, I'm not saying that we should take this literally, because I don't think Jesus is saying that. However, it's a natural progression in following Jesus that we should be prepared to suffer for our faith. If Jesus is the Son of Man, who is the King of all the earth, who is mocked, rejected, and then killed, then we too must be prepared to be mocked and rejected for our faith. If we are to make Jesus central in our lives, then we too must adopt his message. In following Jesus, we must be prepared for humiliation, must take up our cross, and follow him. Again, this is a really challenging part of the text never easy to hear that following Jesus has a lasting cost but it is the reality it is the vast reality for a lot of Christians in the world um, open doors is an organization uh, that supports the persecuted church and every year they release the 50 most persecuted countries in the world you know in nine, in 2018 to 2019. They reported that 245 million people in that top 50 experienced high levels of persecution, meaning they are at risk uh, for their faith. And one in nine Christians 
worldwide experience a high level of persecution. That's a lot of people who experience persecution because of their faith in Jesus. And in many of these places, it is a given that to follow Jesus means there will be a cost. And still people believe. Because no matter the consequences, they treasure Jesus and they treasure the hope they have in Jesus. In Niger, it was a very real possibility for those that Claire and I were with that they would be persecuted. You know, we heard countless stories of people who risked everything to follow Jesus and tell people about him, even at the risk of their own lives. One young boy would escape the Islamic school just to hear the Bible and to hear sermons, even when the punishments were so clear and evident. Another young man became a Christian when I was there. Initially, he was fearful for what his family may think of his new faith and didn't want anyone to know. You know, I understood the difficult position he was in, but the longer that I was there and the more that he knew Jesus and knew who he was, the more that he became vocal about his faith. He began to see that to know Jesus is to live for him, even to the point of humiliation. So what does that mean for us? You know, in terms of persecution, I'm sure you can already tell, but being a Christian is much easier in Australia. I've rarely worried about my safety, and I know that I can worship freely in this country. However, this does not mean that we can't pick up our cross. In a video by Mike Gore, uh, the head of Open Doors in Australia, he shares a story where a Christian in a persecuted country rebuked him, and as a result, us as Australians. He said that we are like serpents who hear the word of God but do not obey. We know who Jesus is and what he asks of us, but we do not do it. Now in hearing the call to pick up our cross, we should be following Jesus and making his mission real on earth. Now we should be worshipping God not just on Sunday. We should be doing good works and helping our neighbours. And we should be sharing the news that Jesus is the Messiah, no matter what pushback we get. And in the midst of uh, COVID-19, we should be followers of Jesus and caring about those. It takes a lot of courage and faith to transform our lives to be followers of Christ. But I think it is worth it. I think it is worth it because the alternative that Jesus proposes is even more scary for us as Christians than picking up one's cross. Now from verses 35 to 38, Jesus says this, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now there are three points that I want to pick up in these three verses. Firstly, we cannot save our life, but must give it all. 
Secondly, gaining possessions won't save us. And thirdly, being shameful of Jesus does not save you. This first point follows very closely with taking up one's cross, that to follow Jesus is to give everything to Jesus. If we want to save our life by placing ourselves as central in our lives, then we will perish. And also, how can we possibly save ourselves? Now, this verse is deliberately paradoxical. As another commentator, Strauss, says, The paradox of the Christian faith is that by dying to ourselves and following God's way, we inherit new life. However, if we are to live for ourselves, then we deny God's way shown through Jesus and lose our life. Secondly, gaining things won't save us, meaning the accomplishments and the things we gain in this life won't save us. Now, the places we go, the people we know, the education or job we have doesn't save us. It might make life more palatable here, but it is not following Jesus. It is just another way of making self central. Now, it is okay and good to have things, know people, have an education and a good paying job. How And I would say that it's even necessary to have those things as part of living life. However, we need to be careful that they don't become our main priority. We may gain the whole world and have so much ambition, but that does not save us. It is in following Jesus that we gain and have life, and it is in having faith in Jesus that we are saved. Now, I just want to pause here to say that Jesus is not saying that works gain you salvation. Now, that runs contrary to the grain of Jesus' message and the gospel. However, if we truly treasure Jesus and treasure this grace given to us, then we want to follow him. Yes, it is by grace we are saved, but this grace given to us motivates us to follow Jesus. A good example of this is marriage. When you enter marriage, the thing that binds you together is mutual love and your vows. However, it would be foolish to not take care of that marriage. Many people say that I am still in the honeymoon stage. But in that space, marriage still takes work to care for the other person and show sacrificial love. I might not want to wash dishes every night or make the bed, but I do it out of love and respect for Claire. In the same way, when we become followers of Jesus, we work at our faith in Jesus and show that we care about it and care about him. Thirdly, being shameful of Jesus doesn't save you. It seems self-explanatory, but we can often hide our belief and faith in Jesus. I know that I have not shared my belief when I have felt that I might be ridiculed. I think this is just as bad as having the wrong view of Jesus. It's because I am ashamed of sharing my faith. I also know that Jesus is ashamed of those who are ashamed of him. We see that in verse 38. Now I know who Jesus is, but I am unwilling to share who he is. I'm not saying that we all need to go to Rundle Mall and share our faith to everyone. But we need to be prepared to share our faith because we love Jesus and we know who he is. And we also want to share our faith because we love other people and God does too. 
and shame of what others think gets in the way of that. In concluding, we have learnt that the turning point in Mark shows who Jesus truly is. But this turning point also has implications in our lives. We are told to take up our cross and follow Jesus, no matter the consequences, because we are followers of Jesus. In this we have hope that Jesus is the Son of Man who will return with glory, and he is the one who died for our sins. And this revelation doesn't just change how we view Jesus, but changes how we live. Uh, Let me pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for Jesus and thank you for who he is. I want to thank you that um, to follow him is not just to follow rules, but it's to change every part of ourselves. May the grace of your spirit help us to do this. Help us to uh, change who we are to follow you and to uh, deny oneself. In Jesus' name, Amen.